how transformative WhatsApp has been um, for my job, as it has been in every other country in the world, I think, apart from the US where they don't seem to use WhatsApp, both positive and negative. So making a phone call between two African countries can be incredibly expensive. And so being able to message someone on WhatsApp or being able to call them on WhatsApp has broken down huge barriers uh, for journalists um, in, yeah, in the last few years. There's also, on the flip side, the barrage of fake news that is now spread by, by WhatsApp, sometimes with deadly consequences. Um, and that's something that we're, you know, we're struggling with every single day. Um, so I, th I just would single out WhatsApp as, as the one application that has just changed everything um, for, for journalism, certainly where I'm living in the last five years, for sure. Hello, and welcome to Freelance Pod. My name's Chandrika Chakrabarti, and I'll be your host. FreelancePod is all about how the internet has changed the world of work. On each episode, I'll speak to a guest about freelancing, side hustles, the gig economy, jobs that weren't possible before the internet, and how moving from an analogue to a digital age has revolutionised the way we work. If you'd like to get involved in the conversation, I'd love to hear from you. So please do follow FreelancePod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also join the Facebook group and you don't have to be a freelancer to get involved. On this episode, I speak to freelance journalist Jennifer Omani, who's based in West Africa. The widespread use of mobile phones in the area means that landlines and broadband internet never really took off. Very few businesses use websites because Facebook is free. They don't really use banks because mobile money is cheaper and more convenient. And email isn't that popular either. A phone call or WhatsApp is preferred. Jennifer has had to adapt to using these methods of reporting after working in Hong Kong, where people tend to have the latest tech and would prefer not to speak on the phone. Here's what Jennifer had to tell me about the changing role technology and the internet has played in her career as a foreign correspondent. So it's Jennifer Iwani. So I started off my career at the Daily Telegraph in London um, as a tradee, and I now work for them as a freelance journalist but I also write for Economist 1843 for Wired and I do some radio stuff for, for the BBC and for Monocle. So I'm a freelance journalist covering uh, West Africa and occasionally beyond, occasionally East Africa as well. Um, I had a job as a fact checker at The Nation, well it was an internship actually, um, which is a sort of political magazine in New York. So I did that for four months, which is obviously a really different school of journalism um, compared to, yeah, the, the Telegraph or the Fleet Street tradition. Um, so actually, for me, I'm really glad that I got to see both of those sides, which are completely different and value completely different things in journalism. But both have their their merits in terms of storytelling and um, the way they approach things like ethics or um, narrative as well. Um, so that's how I started out. Um, I then I joined the Telegraph in 2011. I got sent to Scotland for six months to work on the Scotsman. And I also did some work at PA, so Press Association in London. Yeah, all of those were like a really good mix before I before I actually began properly in London at the Telegraph. That's the way they did it. Um, when you were a trainee, they wanted to sort of send you out to another place to do some stuff with a, a wire and then bring you into the London office. That was all part of the, the traineeship. And then, yeah, when I was in London, it was the Olympics. I did a total of like, 
I think, 18 months with The Telegraph. And then I had this opportunity to go to to AFP. And I'd, I'd, you know, by then I knew what the wires were. I was, you know, reading the wires every day. I could see that actually a lot of the time the wires were the ones that were breaking the news and the newspapers were the ones that were picking up what the wires were putting out and, and running with it and following up their stories. And that was interesting to me. That was something I decided was definitely worth pursuing. Like, oh, I want to get to, you know, the, the front line of journalism or whatever. This is going to be the best way to do it. So I took a job with AFP in Paris. Uh, it was just a six month contract on the desk there. So I was just translating, editing, uh, rewriting stories from uh, correspondents all over Europe and Africa. Yeah, I think I saw it as a longer term gamble. Um, I knew I wouldn't be reporting in Paris. That wasn't the job and that's not what they had hired me to do. But at least I was in Paris and that was like my first step to working abroad and to developing what I hoped would become a job as a foreign correspondent. I didn't know if it would ever really happen at that point. Um, It's something that I knew I'd wanted pretty much since I'd wanted to become a journalist. But all I knew is I'm in Paris. I'm working for an international agency. They send people to different countries all the time. Maybe one day, um, you know, I'll get picked to do something. And that was, I think, pretty much as far as I as I thought of it. Um, I was, what, 23 by then, 24. So I wasn't necessarily mapping out the rest of my career. I was just like, oh, somebody's given me this opportunity. Let's, let's run with it. Then I got an opportunity to go to Hong Kong, like six months after I'd been in Paris. So that gamble did work out. Again, I was on a desk, but there was more reporting opportunities as well. In Hong Kong, we had these huge uh, pro-democracy protests. You may remember from 2014, the umbrella movement protests. So the students gathering in the streets of Hong Kong to fight for democracy, to fight against the encroachment of Beijing into Hong Kong. And that was really thrilling to cover. And again, to be at the center of like a huge international story was, you know, that sealed the deal for me. I thought, okay, this is exactly what I want to be doing. This is what I've told myself I want to do. And now here I am covering something like this albeit for, you know, a few weeks. And then it was back to doing more, you know, desk shifts and the usual stuff that I would be covering when I was there. But, you know, having worked at AP, you'll know doing things like the alerts on the wire. So the one line, 15 seconds, uh, this is about a North Korean missile being, you know, fired. Is it true? Where's the source come from? What, what are they saying? What are the implications? And having to summarize that into 12 were, well, usually less than that. Um, incredibly stressful, but great, great training and uh, incredibly interesting way of, you know, realizing this is how the news gets made in, in these tiny bursts of um, of words. And then all the, the Sky News ticker tape, the CNN, everybody's suddenly got that alert and has, you've seen something that you've just written being going twice around the world in, in a matter of minutes. And that's, you know, that's an amazing feeling. Here, Jennifer goes into more detail about covering the Umbrella Movement protests in Hong Kong back in 2014. It's a story that isn't over yet, as some of the protesters are still on trial at the moment and are facing a seven-year jail term. Well, I think um, there was a lot of tear gas, so that's something I hadn't experienced before. And they made, they made these amazing uh, makeshift masks out of plastic bottles so the protesters the, the most ingenious people uh, I've ever met like they came every time the police did something they develop a tactic against it so a really good example was the, the the masks that they made so that you could breathe 
uh, with cotton cotton wool and plastic bottles so that when the tear gas was fired, they could stay in place. I mean, it didn't work for very long, but you still bought yourself a bit of time at least to, to get to it into a different position where you weren't sort of choking in your eyes, watering. The thing with Hong Kong is that well, it's incredibly peaceful. People would sleep on the ground with their phone next to them and no one would steal their new iPhone. They would just be asleep and with their phone there and nothing would happen. I think one thing that really stuck with me was there was absolutely nothing to gain for these kids to to protest. They're already living in, you know, one of the wealthiest cities in the world, very well educated, have everything sort of going for them if they want to and if they're willing to toe the line uh, for China. And they just didn't want to. And a lot of them went to jail for that um, and are still being, you know, still have legal problems um, now for their role in those protests. And they just were so passionate about wanting independence for for their just independent thought, really. Not Some of them were literally wanted independence for Hong Kong, but very few of them. They just wanted their city to be theirs and to have a greater say in um, in their elections. And again, I think it's the first time I reflected back onto what I had at, at home. I'm, I've always voted... I've always valued voting. I'm obviously interested in the democratic process, but it, I'd, it's never been something I've thought about being removed or given only to a small group of people as it is in Hong Kong, a tiny sort of group of uh, wealthy and influential people actually pick who will become the, the leader in Hong Kong. And, and Beijing wanted to erode that even further to a list of people that they had pre-approved. So I think it was the one of many, many moments working in Asia where that made me reflect on my own democracy, my own country, um, the the freedoms that we fought very hard for, and that a lot of people, certainly of my age, having not lived through World War II, have never thought about being eroded, really. It was one of the first times I'd been given any opportunity to, to report. So I was just scanning the crowd for uh, prominent student leaders, for prominent pro-democracy politicians, for anybody that I could actually get a quote from. So I wasn't just taking in the atmosphere, enjoying, uh, you know, watching people milling around. I was like on a heat-seeking missile, looking for sources, looking for people to speak to, because if I went back to the office with nothing, then I was very unlikely to get let out again. So um, it was it was stressful, both in terms of thinking about personal safety and about um, that night, they were, there were all these rumours as well, which is another thing that happens very frequently in protests everywhere in the world. There's rumours that the army, the Chinese army is coming in, that they're going to fire rubber bullets on the crowd, that they've got live rounds, that they're doing all of this stuff. And it's very hard to know in that moment what's true and what isn't. So, you know, it, and especially when you're reporting to not send something false back to the desk and to corroborate what you're seeing and what people are telling you in a, in a movement, sorry, in a moment that's very fluid and where things are changing all the time. So I just remember the overwhelming stress well, being a news agency, um, we were pretty well, and, and it being a huge story, we had multiple reporters, video video journalists, photographers, um, and even people just wandering home from work because it was so unusual to have a story of this size in Hong Kong. People were just popping up and sending stuff back to the desk to say what they had seen or to, to report on developments they'd read um, on social media. Everybody was really engaged in putting out the best story possible. Uh, with the spotlight on the city that that we were in. Again, when you're in an international agency, they are covering the whole world every day. So it's quite hard to shine. And there are some bureaus, the White House, for example, that always have interest every single day. 
But that's not always true, especially, you know, when I moved to West Africa, you really have to fight for people's interests within your own organization, not only for for the wider readership or for media clients, but even in your own, you know, your own bosses, making them interested in your stories can sometimes be tough. Whereas when you have a, a democracy process in Hong Kong, pretty much, you know, these are stories that are making front pages that are producing really compelling images as well, which helps to sell the story a lot better than than a lot of the stories I cover now, which don't necessarily always have the powerful images that seem to be required for people to be interested in things. So I was um, recording stuff, um, interviews on my phone, my dictaphone, depending on which one had battery. Um, I was also obviously taking notes. I was taking pictures with my phone, also just for my own notes. I mean, when you work for a wire, there's there's wire photographers with you know, really good cameras taking images. You're unlikely, unless you get some really crazy moment on your phone to have those images used, not impossible. But of course, for me to remember what I'd seen, the people I'd spoken to, what they looked like, all of the detail that uh, is really important later, taking sort of visual notes with 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 pictures and occasionally uh, videos as well uh, and, and posting some of it when when I felt or when I had a moment when I also had a connection because uh, the 3G was getting used up very quickly by so many people being in one place, posting also on on social media about the things that I was witnessing and um, the people that I was meeting, while also there's always a rule, don't scoop the wire. So if it was a really key quote that somebody gave me, then don't put that straight away on Twitter. Keep it back and make sure that it's on the wire before you do that. You know, if you're going to put it on the wire as an alert, then you don't put it on social media. That's the sort of vague guide I, I used. And, you know, people are putting a lot of faith in you by sending you out um, into this big story. So don't spend too much of your time on social media to the point where you're actually not doing your job and you're not interviewing people um, to the for the amount of time and in depth uh, that you actually need. I mean, social media is a great way of uh, keeping track of what's going on as well. I mean, not only to broadcast what you're doing, but also to see what other people are doing, where uh, smaller protests are popping up in other parts of the city, for example, uh, you can find that out through social media and therefore you n- notify the people that you're with that that's happening. There's also, you know, the WhatsApp group that I'm pretty sure most reporting teams would have now if they went to an event of that size so that you can let people know, okay, I just saw this guy here. It's worth going to speak to the student leader who I saw pop up over there so that people are distributing themselves in a way that's effective for the whole team. And collaboration is just absolutely key or you're going to get a really small side of the story um, if you're not sharing information at all the time. How transformative WhatsApp has been um, for my job as it has been in every other country in the world, I think, apart from the US where they don't seem to use WhatsApp, both positive and negative. So making a phone call between two African countries can be incredibly expensive. And so being able to message someone on WhatsApp or being able to call them on WhatsApp has broken down huge barriers uh, for journalists um, in, in the last few years. There's also, on the flip side, the barrage of fake news that is now spread by by WhatsApp, sometimes with deadly consequences. Um, and that's something that we're, you know, we're struggling with every single day. Um, so I, th- I just would single out WhatsApp as, as the one application that has just changed everything um, for, for journalism, certainly where I'm living in the last five years, for sure. Yeah, so I say, yeah, WhatsApp, um, as I said, Facebook, 
Facebook Live uh, specifically, so that my experience in in the Gambia. Um, and I would also say one final thing, which is really specific to to Africa, um, is mobile money. Um, so just being able to pay people uh, to pay fixes um, via mobile money, things like um, Orange Money, Wari. In Kenya, they have um, M-Pesa. Um, most people where I live don't have a bank account. Um, 80% of the, of the population, I think, in Senegal does not have a bank account. Um, so these mobile wallets enable you to send money via mobile phone. Um, and it's, again, incredibly um, useful way of, um, of, moving, of moving money around and of solving a problem that's really caused by banks uh, really squeezing some of the poorest people in the world out of money they don't have um, who could really benefit from having a bank account. And people have found a solution to that that's completely separate from the traditional um, banking sector. And I think that's worked incredibly well um, and is a really positive change. So people also pay their kids school fees with mobile money. They'll pay for their groceries with almost anything. But it's just something that is in every single village that you go through um, in, in West Africa, there's the little orange money uh, kiosk. And, um, you know, the banks are just in the big cities. So it's that's something that I think is really democratizing that mobile has brought to not just journalism, but to the, the population much more generally. Yeah. I've been to protests in the Gambia, for example, when the uh, the former leader, Yaya Jame, was um, contesting an election. Everyone thought he would win. This was in 2016. And there was this amazing groundswell of anger and just frustration that this guy had been in power for 22 years and he wouldn't shift. And that was a very, very different kind of protest. Just the, it's like people had been suppressing this anger for such a long time. And this is during the campaign was one of the few times of the year where they could really express themselves, where it was actually legal to gather and to express political opinions and that was a bit more scary. Um, there's also a fair amount of um, of crime. A lot of people got their stuff stolen, and people were just so caught up in their in their own anger that you were worried that they could uh, sort of start a fight over a really minor political point with somebody else they were chatting to or something like that. So there, you really had to be careful. I mean, to be fair, also a couple of people were like so helpful to me and to my team that were there at the time. And sort of guided us through the, the crowds and, and sort of pushed people away, away who were annoying us or who were sort of following us, us and asking us to have be filmed or whatever. So there are always, I would say, good Samaritans in the crowd who, in my experience, will see if you're in trouble and who do want the, their story to be told and who do want their country to, you know, have a, a positive image um, on, on TV and they will come and, and help you out. That's only from my own experience. I know from, you know, people who cover maybe the Middle East or uh, Russia, uh, that might not always be the case. But um, I've I've been lucky that people have sort of had my back both my colleagues and just complete strangers who were um, protesting or involved in activism who helped me out. Most of the time I was in West Africa I was with a cameraman and sometimes a camera woman. Um, the two of us would go around together so I would conduct the interviews um, and we'd sort of do it as a pair and I always really liked that because not only just you know safety and numbers and so on but also just having someone to bounce ideas off, like, oh, is it important that we, should we do this? You know, there's, there's unlimited 
people that you can speak to, but there's not an unlimited amount of time. So you've got to pick and plan your day really carefully. And if you're thinking in images or you're thinking in text, you have to make sure that everybody's got what they need. So that's something that I think uh, I've always usually been with someone who's got a big camera, um, but I'm not the one luckily uh, behind it because they're the ones that get far more attention and that get people just coming up to them and wanting to say whatever so that they can say hi to their mum on TV. Whereas for me, it's much more people who I almost have to persuade to speak to me rather than um, who immediately want to or who immediately don't want to because there's a camera. I think camera is like a really divisive thing to put up in front of somebody. It can attract some people and it can push other people away. Whereas if you're just recording it, um, you can be maybe a bit, you have more of a chat, be a bit more persuasive. And people um, are, I think, less afraid of um, of those kinds of interviews. And I found the same with radio as well. I've done uh, radio reporting and the reaction has been largely the same to doing it for text. Um, whereas with a camera, that's the thing that really makes the difference. The other thing I found really um, interesting working in, in the Gambia especially was um, people loved filming us. So they could show off like, oh, a film crew's come to Banjul and they're covering the news here and that's really cool. So I'm just going to film you guys doing your job. And I found that really uncomfortable and I had absolutely no right to because, of course, that's my job. That's what I do to other people all the time. Um, but I really didn't particularly like it. And um it's distracting as well when you're trying to work. Uh, people sort of giving like a commentary on Facebook Live about what you're doing and who's who's there and what's happening around you. But of course, if you have a smartphone in your hand, we spoke a little bit before about citizen journalists. There's also just people who are sounding off about whatever they want. And you're, if you're in that frame, then, you know, you're also being put onto social media. You're being made part of the news um, as people can see it. And that's something that I think previous generations didn't have to contend with. Um, uh, not not only do you have to think about your work and what you're doing and getting all of the material that you need, but you also want to present yourself politely, respectfully, but you also need to get your job done. And that can be really tough to balance those things when people are, um, you know, filming you and, or even ask, you know, sometimes people are just asking for selfies or whatever, which is you know, completely fine. That only takes two seconds. But when it's a, a long video where they're sort of filming you, that can, you know, it can be, in, uh, it can get in the way for sure. One other aspect of that, speaking of power, is, um, and I think Hong Kong and uh, China and West Africa is really good, two good examples of this, is who controls the internet and, uh, you know, and how is it filtered and what, what access do people have to information. So, China's gone down the route of um, extreme filtering, of um, monitoring people and taking specific keywords off search engines and so on. In the Gambia, for example, when I was there, there was a, just a complete internet blackout. So it's a much more blunt method. Like, I don't want people to be tweeting about how I've lost an election. So I'm just going to turn off the internet. And there was no internet for uh, 48 hours, I think. And we were all trying to file our stories and send images and send video. And luckily, some British diplomats helped us out to be able to file from one Ethernet connection in, their, in the garden of the British embassy, every single team that was covering this election, which was obviously completely mad that like you had your, your 10 minutes on the quite slow connection, and then you had to leave and let the next person in. So sometimes these challenges emerge from from nowhere or they can be, you know, they can change on a daily basis as they do in China. They add different keywords every single day about different officials who've been arrested or um, human rights activists who are causing them problems. 
And um, that's like a, something that can be really obvious and acute, like it was in the Gambia, or it can be something that you've got to keep an eye on on a daily basis, as it is in as it is in China. So control of the internet is is a massive, massive thing, especially in some countries in West Africa where uh, access to data can be incredibly expensive. That's another way of stopping your people from finding out what's really going on in their country is to price them out of it. I think in Equatorial Guinea, um, I think it's the most expensive in West Africa, and it's just completely beyond the reach of the ordinary citizen to get enough data onto a really basic smartphone to actually even go on Twitter or something like that. Again, not something we have to think about or worry about in uh, in the UK or in Europe, where it's much more, oh, what are we doing about fake news, for example. But in West Africa, the challenges can be much more about access at all. Electricity, can you charge your phone? Can you uh, get onto your uh, computer? Do you actually have uh, enough electricity that day to to be able to access it? That's another huge problem. Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting um, debate. And if you look at the regimes that have cut um, Internet in the last few years, in, certainly in West Africa, and we've seen Internet blackouts in somewhere like Cameroon, um, they tend to happen when there is you know, unrest and when there is or in Togo as well, um, when there is an uprising against an unpopular leader, um, that's when they decide to to cut the Internet. Um, Though there's, there are some situations where I sort of I, I happened to me the other day. I was in um, Mali doing a story, and they they briefly cut the internet just for a couple of hours, and it wasn't really announced, and there was no election. But there was a big meeting of heads of states. It was Mali's Independence Day. There was a big parade, and all of these heads of state had come and flown in for the event, and that was purely to stop um, a terrorist attack. So they just cut the internet so that people couldn't, and calls as well, you could not get through to stop people from communicating so that they could not attack this, uh, the parade or um, any of the heads of state visiting. And again, it's a blunt tool. It's not the way that you would want to deal with that problem. But in another way, in a government that doesn't have much money and that doesn't have the sort of sophisticated surveillance technology that we might have um, in the West, you can see why they did it. So I worked in Hong Kong for two years, and then um, I really wanted to work in a francophone environment. I was already working for a French news agency, so that's AFP. I just wanted to get to the point where I was working in French on a daily basis, that I could interview government officials, um, for example, business leaders in French, and just feel completely comfortable with, with doing that. And I also wanted to to work in Africa. I wanted a complete change. I just wanted to be somewhere that I didn't know anything about. And that was a different challenge um, in terms of reporting. So a job came up in, in Senegal as West Africa correspondent for AFP. So that was, it's a French-speaking country. And it's also um, in a really interesting region. So I took that job and um, moved. Uh, that was in February 2016. Yeah. So then I was starting a completely, again, moving to Asia was like a massive shock to the system in terms of journalistic practice and the way that uh, I had been reporting before. And then West Africa was like a whole new journalism school, um, completely different. Some of the aspects that I've already mentioned, but just things like there's really widespread illiteracy in West Africa. So people don't really like to uh, text very much. They prefer to phone people. They also prefer to meet in person than to necessarily have a phone chat, which when somebody is thousands of miles away and a very expensive plane ride away, can sometimes be really challenging to achieve. 
so you often are just left without any any quotes or anything unless you can really make it happen to go and see them or to sort of persuade them to have a sort of long phone call and that's really really different to what I was used to in Asia for example we would do a lot of news about Japan in AFP um, in Asia and you could use the the Japanese wires like GG you know with confidence you could trust that what they were putting um, on the wire was was probably true and that the government had if a government made a statement, they put it on the wire, you could use that. There hasn't been anything like that until very recently in, in West Africa. Literally since I've lived here, a couple of Liberia, for example, and the Gambia as well, they've really, uh, the government's really upped their game and has started connecting with citizens on Facebook. So there's a Facebook page for the president where they actually post all the news um, of what's happening with the government and with the direction of reforms in the country. And that's something that has been a really big shift from those two changes of power in the last uh, yeah two years but there is definitely um nothing in the way of yeah what we would have the press association or ap there's no, there's no sort of local wires that you can use to get reliable information um some of the local press is really great liberia particularly has a, a great um newspaper called front page africa but a lot of it's very under-resourced. I think journalists working in Nigeria, for example, there's a lot of misinformation published and, uh, you know, stuff taken off social media without being checked and then um, put on newspaper websites. And that's something that is uh, really tough when you're um, sitting in Senegal and you're trying to report on a story, for example, in, in the Gambia, and you read something on this newspaper website and you're like, oh, that sounds interesting. But then you call up the correspondent living there and he says, mm, that's not exactly what happened. Um, so it's checking, checking, checking always having plenty of sources more than, you know, you might, um, for example, yeah, when I was in Hong Kong and just trying to get, get, you know, cut through the misinformation that's out there, but also the lack of information. People just don't write about somewhere like Sierra Leone. It's incredibly hard to just get basic facts about what happened during a protest or during a police raid or um, something like that, because there's not a huge amount of attention on that country. I think it's hard to beat the wires in terms of immediate accountability when you've done something wrong. That was awful. There was a typo. There, that's not the source or whatever. Um, and you learn to really fear that. And it makes you much sharper. I mean, what we always used to fear more than the correction was the kill. You know, the, the, the story was completely wrong and had to actually be removed from the wire. That was something that used to keep me up at night. I, I, like, I don't want one of those. And just the sort of like the sharp intake of breath when you saw one on the wire, like, God, thank God that wasn't me. Yeah really really scary <laughs> though I think also when you're in a wire you kid yourself that occasionally you would get a byline or you, they put the initials on the end of the story but really not many people are looking at that I mean even if you're a journalist for a newspaper people don't necessarily look at the bylines let alone wire copy which is only other journalists looking at it so I think it's you make a sort of huge deal out of like oh my god everyone thinks that I'm awful and I'll never work again and no one's really noticed apart from your boss and his boss and her boss and yeah, a few other people. Um, I think what I would say is don't let people tell you that um, it's either impossible or much more difficult than doing domestic news. I actually don't think that's necessarily true. I think you potentially have to take a few more risks and you may have to save up a bit of money but there are still routes in. I mean, The Wires, which we've spoken about a lot, is a really good example. You can also just freelance in maybe a country that's not too expensive for a while where 
maybe there aren't a lot of staff correspondence and there are interesting things happening in the region. Um, so it's about like locating a country or a place that, you know, where things might be happening and um, and making making yourself, the you know, the person, the, the person of reference for a potentially a bit more obscure uh, region. I think also um, I wish that I had had more or sought out more mentors. Like I, I just pretty much applied for the jobs that I could see, did my best. Um, and I think it took me like a long time to get where I wanted to get, partly because I didn't didn't really ask for help and I didn't really push for somebody to sort of take me in hand like over a longer period and to sort of work on my writing with me. And it's not always easy, especially as a woman, to find those people. But if you can, then definitely seize that opportunity because I think you can meander and you can just sort of do something for longer than you need to because you can't see clearly how you're going to get to the next step. I think that's another thing I would say. And also I would just say you do not and should never work for free just because you're in a foreign country and um, maybe people are more likely to say yes to your stories because they don't have anyone else there. That still doesn't mean that you should have to work for free. I've never done that and I'm really proud of that and it's not necessary it just will take longer you just have to approach more people approach more editors and um you know just keep speaking to people that's the other thing i would say face to face whenever you if you if you do end up moving abroad or if you are thinking about moving abroad and you know where you want to go tell people tell editors and meet them face to face tell them where you're going the stories you want to do and why because it can feel very lonely sending an email from thousands of miles away that no one bothers answering. It's really worth at least getting some interest from a couple of people uh, before you do decide to, to take the plunge. And that's more from a freelance perspective. You know, if you're a staff journalist, then you've got a few more advantages in terms of hopefully somebody's helping you out with, with your moving costs or maybe with a flight, you know, a flight home or something like that you know, think really broadly because the world is absolutely massive and you can work in, you know, five different places and have five different careers. So it's worth looking at, you know, the kind of things you want to cover, the kind of people you want to work with before you make that call and say, yeah, yeah I'm going to be a China reporter. It's like, okay, are you prepared to spend 10 years learning language? For example, you know, these, these considerations are, are big and they make a big difference. And languages, that's my last one. So learning French for me and learning Spanish for me has been the only way I could have done my job and I, I couldn't do it without them. And not everywhere in the world is like that, but it does massively help you if you can just learn one language, two languages if possible, especially if they're somewhere like, you know, if you're in Russia, if you're in the Middle East, a place where people, uh, foreign journalists don't necessarily always take the time or make the effort to learn a language. That's a huge asset, I think and will will help you build much stronger sources who trust you more because you're speaking to them in their own language. I'm lucky in that I, ha I had a lot of contacts um, from when I was living in London. So I pretty much went back to the, the people that I had known um, then when I first went freelance in April. And that was really useful for me. But identifying not only good editors, but also people that pay well is extremely time consuming and stressful. And, you know, it, it is really hard to to make money purely from journalism. I mean, there's a lot of people in West Africa, for example, who also do like NGO work or consultancy or, um, you know, editing um, books or translation or 
any number of things on the side because just um, you know the rates aren't necessarily always enough to to live on. Thanks to Jennifer Imani for sharing such detailed, visceral stories from her career reporting across the world. I found her tales absolutely fascinating, and I loved her insight into how the internet is affecting different countries in different ways. If you'd like to get involved in the conversation, I'd love to hear from you. So please do follow Freelance Pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also join the Facebook group, and you don't have to be a freelancer to get involved. If you enjoyed this episode of Freelance Pod, please do rate and review us. This helps other listeners find the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you get a notification every time there's a new episode of Freelance Pod. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.